0: Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings then bowls will be offered on your altar.
1: Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would Help us to humble ourselves before you right now. God, you have promised to exalt the lowly. Help us with this psalmist to be honest about our sin so that we can experience the joy of salvation. I pray your Holy Spirit would work through your word right now in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. We heard from... Psalm 51 that Jill just beautifully read, a cry of an honest heart asking for God's mercy according to his steadfast love. The first portion of that psalm actually starts before verse 1. It says, to the choir master, which means it's a public confession, because the choir master would be leading others in worship. It's a psalm of David, and more specifically, it's a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba, after he had committed adultery as the king of Israel. David doesn't deny his sin. He cannot. Instead, He confesses his sin and pleads for God's mercy. The people of God who trust the word of God, even before Christ, have always believed that there is forgiveness for sin. The book of Leviticus assured Israelites, as they worshipped God, that their sins would be forgiven. And as New Testament believers, we love the truth that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will do it every time. And He is right to do it because Jesus has paid the price for our sins. He is faithful. He is just. My question that I would like to ask as I begin this message is why don't more people... Repent. Why don't more people have the same heart that David showed in Psalm 51? Why don't they acknowledge their own sinfulness? And I ask this question because we're going to see in Luke chapter 16, in the first 18 verses, a group of people, who heard Jesus, and yet they would not repent. And there are many people today that are like them. People inside of church, people outside of church, they've heard the message that you need to confess your sins to experience God's forgiveness, and yet they do not repent. And I'd like to ask the question, why? And in the course of this message, answer it. What we will see Jesus do, very pointedly, he begins in this passage talking to his disciples about how they handle their money. And the Pharisees, the text says, who were lovers of money, openly mocked what Jesus taught. His teaching revealed that they worshipped not the God of heaven, but a God of gold. They loved Money, But rather than repenting of that, they discredited his teaching through open mockery. And so in response to that, Jesus taught about something that is incredibly personal and deeply painful both in his day and in our day. As people were laughing at his teaching about money... He then turned and taught about divorce, and no one laughed. What I'd like us to consider today, acknowledging that this is a deeply personal issue for many people here, is that we cannot and we must not lose sight of why Jesus is talking about it here in Luke. So I want to begin, and I I have not answered the questions that I've just raised. I want to begin and look at the context so we can understand why Jesus talks about this in the first place. We're going to read the first 13 verses, and I've entitled this section, Greed and Grace. Greed and Grace. Read along with me the first 13 verses of Luke chapter 16. Jesus also said to his disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager." And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write. 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches?" And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus tells a parable that honestly is rather confusing. It seems like he's commending a man for being dishonest. We wonder, Jesus, what are you teaching? Why are you saying that this man was wise to cancel a debt that was owed to his master? And I want to set a couple of things straight right from the beginning. Number one, Jesus is not saying that this man is right to do what he did. In fact, he very clearly calls him unrighteous. Verse 8 says he was a dishonest manager, that the word behind dishonest in Greek is the word unrighteous. So he's not saying that this man did what was right, but he is saying that he did what was wise in his life. Now think for just a moment. This manager is the exact polar opposite of the rich fool that we learned about in chapter 12. You remember the story of the rich young fool? He's a man, he's blessed materially. All of his business has exceeded his expectations. And so he says, I will tear down my barns and build larger barns, and then I will rest. I will eat, drink, and be merry And enjoy the fruit of his labor. And as Jesus tells the story, the young man dies, loses everything. He does not take any of that wealth with him in death. And God says to him, you fool, tonight your soul is required of you. And what will happen to all of the things that you collected for yourself? That fool was a fool because he did not consider what would happen After he died. Death comes for all of us. And Jesus says. If you are wise. You will think about. What happens on the other side of the grave. This manager. Is the exact opposite. Of that rich fool. He understands. That his time is up. And so he uses what he has to guarantee that he can continue to live a comfortable life when he no longer is able to manage his master's wealth. There are so many parallels for what Jesus is teaching his disciples. Just one is the fact that none of the things that you and I think we have belong to us. Literally everything we own belongs to God and God has entrusted it to us to manage it for him, there's coming a time when he will call us home and we no longer manage those things. So Jesus is calling us to say, how are you managing what's not yours, knowing that there will be a time when you are called to give an account for it? And he helps us apply these truths. Notice what he says in verse 9. We are called to recognize what truly lasts and what does not. He says, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, not if it fails, when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Wealth can fail in a lot of ways. Many of you will remember what happened in 2008 we went into a recession, took us over a decade to recover from it economically, you know that wealth can fail while you're alive. But not only can wealth fail through a recession or through some sort of personal loss, wealth can just fail when you die. And Jesus says it's not a question of if it fails, it's a question of when it fails. So he says what you ought to do while you have whatever wealth you have, is you ought to use it to make friends so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. You know he's talking about investing into eternity because he says so clearly that's where your friends will be and that's where they will welcome you. So number one, from this shrewd manager... Recognize what lasts and what doesn't. And as Jesus said elsewhere, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Number two, Jesus says, you are to be faithful in little things so that you will be entrusted in greater things. Look again at verses 10 to 12. He says, one who's faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who's dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, in other words, the kind of worldly wealth that will perish, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? In other words, Jesus is saying worldly wealth is of almost no value eternally. And in fact, he calls it unrighteous wealth. And and here's the reason why. The the Bible doesn't teach that money is actually evil. A, A lot of times we misquote that verse. Paul says to Timothy, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. He doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It's the love of money. It's when it has your heart. But I believe the reason that Jesus calls it unrighteous wealth is because for so many people, it grabs our hearts and it causes us to worship the wrong things. So he says this is unrighteous wealth. It's not going to last, so it's actually not that valuable. And it leads many people astray, so it can damage your eternal soul. But Jesus doesn't say, swear it off and never touch it. He says, Use it to invest in what is eternally valuable. Be faithful in what you have. No matter if you have a small amount or if you have a large amount, be faithful in how you use it. And recognize that you cannot have it both ways. You cannot pursue your worldly comfort like the young fool and also have a heart to invest eternally. Jesus says, so look at verse 13 again, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Notice, Jesus is saying this to his disciples. He is saying it to people he is going to entrust the work of the ministry with. After Jesus dies on the cross, rises from the dead, he ascends to heaven, sends the Holy Spirit. And these men are entrusted with the wealth of the kingdom of God. It's their job to point people to the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ, they are entrusted with true riches. You you can't buy happiness, and you certainly cannot buy peace with God. It's one of the most precious things that you could ever experience. Having a conscience, like David describes, that is guilty, being made clean. That's true wealth. That's true riches. Jesus is going to entrust these people with the true riches of the kingdom. So he's going after their hearts and saying, if you have a heart for money, you cannot be entrusted with the wealth of the kingdom, the gospel of grace. People are not going to believe you if your treasure is here on earth, but you're trying to tell them that they need to store up treasure in heaven. There are a lot of people that get this wrong. There are famous preachers that get this wrong. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus wants you and I to be smart with our money. He wants you to know that time is short. He could return at any moment. You could die at any moment. And you and I, we would be fools if we focus on our own comfort in this life, fully knowing that eternity is coming and we need to prepare for it now. The things that you do with your money have an influence on eternity. You might say, well, how is that? How is that true? I'll just give you one example. We believe that people are saved as they hear the word of God preached. The gospel of good news. Which means we need people dedicated to preaching and teaching. People who are dedicated to building relationships with the lost. Not people who are in the church, although it needs to be preached there too. But especially people who have never heard it. And if people are going to dedicate their lives to that, they need to be supported financially. So when you give, whether it's to your church or whether it's to foreign missions, when you give, your money is supporting the spread of the gospel. And when people believe the gospel and are saved, in part, it's because you and I were generous with our unrighteous wealth, and as a result, we changed eternity. Someone who was dead and separated from God and headed to hell... Experienced forgiveness and grace and peace with God, and they will worship at the throne for all of eternity together with us. The things that we do with our money will change eternity. And Jesus is saying, first to his disciples, but also to us. We have the same job. We've inherited it directly from them to go and spread the good news of Jesus into all the world. And the things that we do with our money have an eternal, everlasting impact. Jesus is calling for you to be smart with your money. Not in a short-term, I-need-to-save-for-retirement way, but in a long-term, how will my money influence not just a few years at the end of my life, but how will my money influence all of eternity? Jesus teaches you and me to store up treasure in heaven. I believe, if anything, many Christians care far too much about being financially smart And selfish with their own money and they don't care nearly enough about using money to change all of eternity think about how Jesus talks about this he he says that that you can be distracted by your money so that it becomes an idol and you worship it and serve it rather than God and this isn't just a truth for people who aren't giving This is also a truth for for those of us who give on a regular basis. You might be the kind of person that you believe you need to give 10% on the nose, and so you carefully calculate it, and you give exactly. Maybe you even give a little bit extra, but you feel as though you followed a good rule, so you're doing things right. God's going to pat you on the back and say, attaboy. But Jesus says not follow this rule. He says, Make friends in the next life with your wealth now. Let me ask you a very pointed question. How many friends do you want? How many friends do you want in the next life? How much you give determines how much gospel impact you will have in the next life. I can't say it's a one-to-one correlation. I have no idea the dollar amount. I, I don't know. Jesus isn't specific because he calls you to a kind of generosity where you invest in eternity, not because you have to, but because you recognize that it's good for you and for other people. One of the amazing joys of heaven that will never end is as you and I thank the people who gave so that we could be saved. I think I was saved through the ministry of a child evangelist. I have no idea of the thousands of people who supported him so he could dedicate his life to trying to reach kids with the gospel. I owe him and I owe all those people and I don't even know their names, but one day I will. And one day I'll have an opportunity to say, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. One day you and I may meet people that because we supported the work of missionaries all around the world, those people came to Christ and for all of eternity, We will thank God that he used people like us to build and to grow the kingdom. How much joy do you want to have in that moment? Well, if you want to have a lot of joy, then you ought to give sacrificially and generously. It's not about the dollar amount. It's about your heart. It's about where your heart is. The reality is a lot of people do not want to hear this kind of teaching. They will openly mock it. They will say, well, churches are just greedy. They're just asking for your money. Pastors want to be paid, and that's partly true. But the reality is, it's not about what we need. It's about what's good for our souls. It's about joy. It's about hope in eternal life and spreading the hope that we have through our giving. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to be entrusted with eternal riches, be faithful in the small things. Be smart. Be wise. But just like people mock that idea today, they mocked it then. So look at the arrogance and the law. We, we've just seen greed and grace. Now look at the arrogance and law of the Pharisees who heard this teaching. Look at verses 14 and 15 with me. It says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money, so, so pause for a second, that means they do not serve God or love God, period. They would have been so angry to hear that, but Jesus is diagnosing the state of their heart. He says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things, and they ridiculed him, they mocked him, they made fun of him. They probably said, you know, he's just some stupid kid that doesn't understand real wisdom. And Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men. In other words, they knew the law. They knew the Old Testament. They knew how much God required them to give. And elsewhere, Jesus said, They even tithed on their little mint and dill plants. So they would give exactly what God required. But they missed the heart of the law, and they used it not to draw close to God, Not like David to recognize their sin and failure and to ask for forgiveness and mercy according to his love. They used the law to say, we did it. We nailed it. So we are right before God because we have followed his commandments. Jesus said, you justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That is a strong word. It means the things that non-Christians value are terrible in the sight of God. Think about that for just a second. Non-Christians love financial planning. I read the Wall Street Journal nearly every day. It's a great paper. Non-Christians love giving advice to make sure that you can comfortably retire. And that kind of wisdom, God says, is a short-sighted abomination. Because you all are going to die at some point. It doesn't matter how comfortable you are at the end of your life. What matters is what happens in eternity that will never end. So when the Pharisees, who probably also would have read the Wall Street Journal, when the Pharisees heard this teaching, they openly mocked Jesus. They they made fun of him. They said, "You're wrong. You don't understand the law. You don't understand money. Your teaching is dumb." And by the way, just as an aside, I think that if you're following the teaching of Jesus with your money, some people will say that you're stupid. And you should take that as a sign that you're doing something right. In reaction to their mockery, okay, Jesus has just given them truth that ought to bless them. Jesus exposed their sinful hearts. At this point, I think we can kind of answer the question I began with. Why don't some people repent and experience the joy of forgiveness? Well, the Pharisees don't repent because they don't believe they need to. They have used the entire Old Testament to say, We are righteous. You don't need to repent if you're righteous. So what Jesus does next, Is he uses the law that they claim to love, To expose their sinful hearts. And look at my final point for this morning, Guilt and grace. Verse 16, Jesus says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now notice what Jesus says about people forcing their way into the kingdom of God. What what does he mean by that? Well, all of Luke has showed you people flocking to enter the kingdom of God. They did it in response to the preaching of John the Baptist. As they came forward with enthusiasm, he preached a gospel of repentance for the forgiveness of sins because he said the kingdom of God is here. And people who knew that they were sinners, like David confessing his sin, they flocked to John and longed to be baptized, publicly repenting of their sins, experiencing forgiveness, experiencing grace. And you see it throughout the ministry of Jesus. People who know they're sinners leave everything behind and flock to Jesus and experience grace. They experience forgiveness. They force their way into the kingdom by recognizing that nothing, nothing is as important as taking hold of eternal life. God's offer is a free gift, and so they rush and receive it. They don't let anything hinder them, and they don't let their pride keep them from confessing sin and receiving grace. So as they understand The message Jesus is preaching is they understand his high call to follow him. They embrace the good news that their sins are forgiven and they follow him. They pick up a cross and they don't look back. Before I go any further. We have to talk about divorce. And this is the hardest part of my message. Why does Jesus talk about divorce here? Because his desire is to expose the internal sin in the heart of a Pharisee who looks like he's righteous. And before I go any further, I want to acknowledge to everyone here the awful pain that comes from divorce to recognize that there are innocent victims of divorce who did not want it and did not choose it. If I had to guess, and this is just a guess, I I have no no way of knowing, I would say probably at least 40% of people here today have been divorced or are married to someone who went through a divorce, and it might be higher than that. I know how deeply personal this verse is. Let me add, this is not the only place that Jesus talks about divorce. Many people believe he is not absolutely forbidding remarriage. Matthew appears to teach that when one spouse is unfaithful sexually, that the other spouse is free to seek divorce. Paul in 1 Corinthians describes a situation where an unbelieving spouse abandons a believer, and Paul says the believer is free to So there's more to be said about this topic, but Jesus isn't raising the issue of divorce so that you and I have a clear sense of when it's right to divorce and when it's wrong to divorce. What's undeniable is that Jesus, speaking to these Pharisees, he is clearly saying that they are committing adultery when they divorced and remarried, and they did it as they claimed to follow the law perfectly. One of the schools of the Pharisees in particular allowed for what we would call an almost no-fault divorce. If your wife burned your dinner, you could leave her destitute and just marry another woman. Just try again. It's possible that Jesus is especially addressing those people. Today, in our day, many times, the desire for divorce comes not because a spouse was unfaithful sexually, but just because marriage is difficult, and you just want to try with someone else for whatever reason. And Jesus calls that adultery. There are still people today who feel justified in divorce, and Jesus would say to you, you are committing adultery, you are wrong. Let me add... This is not an easy teaching, but literally everything Jesus says, everything Jesus says is motivated by his love for you and for me. And this verse is too. Why is he saying something so agonizingly painful? Because he is trying to get mocking Pharisees to see their own sinfulness. He has just confronted their greed and they laughed at him. So then he confronts their adulterous hearts and his confrontation is so deeply personal, they cannot ignore it. He is trying to save their souls. So he is exposing their sin. You cannot repent if you do not admit that you are a sinner. And let me say to you today very bluntly, If you read a verse like that and your desire when you see it is to twist its meaning so that you are innocent of sin before God, you are missing the point of Jesus. You are among those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. But if you hear the teaching of Christ and your heart is broken and you acknowledge your sin before God... Just like David, who committed adultery, found grace and forgiveness, you also can find grace and forgiveness. Jesus is not in any way saying that divorced people are somehow worse sinners than anyone else. If you're here today and you've never been divorced, do not be proud. You have your own sins to repent of. Remember, Jesus also says, if you look at a person with lust, and it could be a man or a woman doing this, you have committed adultery in your heart, you are also guilty. Jesus says these things not to condemn you. He says them so that we are humbled before God, and we recognize our need for grace, and we find forgiveness and life, and that is why we are here today. If, as you've listened to this message, you have heard the Spirit of God confront your sin, don't be angry and say that Jesus is wrong. Be like David. Confess your sin and find peace and forgiveness. Maybe you're divorced here today. And maybe you live with a guilty conscience. Every time you read this verse, every time you hear a Christian talk about divorce... You feel judged. You you feel like you're a second-class citizen in the kingdom. Satan would love it if he could bother you with this for the rest of your life. Do not let him. Remember that Jesus died for the forgiveness of your sins. Confess your sin now. Acknowledge it. If there is sin on your part, And the Holy Spirit will convict you of it. Trust the Holy Spirit to do his work through his word. Confess it and rest in the greatness of God's grace. And leave here with the joy of forgiveness. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you've never been divorced. But maybe you're not serving God. Maybe you're serving money. Maybe as you plan your life, the only thing you're thinking about is how you can live comfortably. You're not worshiping God, you're worshiping yourself. You need to confess that. You need to repent of your greed. You need to change. You need to ask God to give you a generous heart. And I would urge you that you need to commit to giving more generously the way Jesus teaches. All of us here need to continually repent of our sins. There's not two groups here. All of us need this kind of mercy, this kind of grace. We need to be prepared to meet our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, face to face. He is coming. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would let us receive your love. That your Holy Spirit would take this word. Let it come alive in our hearts. We want to not just be hearers of your word, but doers. I pray for those who have come with guilty consciences. I ask that you would liberate them in the power of your word through Jesus Christ. I ask that we would rest in His all-sufficient blood, that it covers all of our sin and we can experience mercy. I ask that You would empower us to walk in obedience and bless us as we look to eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. As we leave this afternoon, it is my prayer that that song is true of you, that you have overcome and you are no longer afraid. And I want to leave you with two verses from the book of Romans. Scripture says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will not count his sin." If you have confessed your sin today, the scripture says you are blessed and go in peace.